You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Carlton here. Welcome to episode 79 of Life Women's Podcast. This episode was actually originally recorded back during the summer of 2020. It was meant to be a bonus episode. Things have changed since then. So please, during the episode, disregard the talk about members only for the APN and the bonus. And this is a really fun episode where we do a deep dive into episode 14, Our Ruined Lives with Bernie Taylor. So hope you guys enjoy and please feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions. Hope you guys enjoy the episode and please be sure to support the Archaeology Podcast Network by becoming a member of the APN to see more additional content from all of the shows on the network. All right. With that, let's go ahead. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and in this special episode, my co-hosts today are Emily Van Alst and Lana Ruck. Emily is a PhD candidate in anthropology at Indiana University Bloomington, studying North American rock art, and she appeared on episode three, one of our first interviewees. And Lana is a dual PhD candidate in anthropology and cognitive science, also at IU Bloomington, where she studies the evolution of handiness and hominins. She appeared on episode 16, where she yelled at me for falling asleep in an MRI machine during her experiment. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me today on this special episode. Thanks for having us. Hey, yeah, I don't study handiness, I study handedness, but it's okay. (laughs) Handedness. All right, so today we are doing a review of Our Ruined Lives, Seeing Red with Bernie Taylor, episode 14. So before you listen to this, I highly recommend our audience to go back and listen to episode 14. Think of some questions and we're going to hope we answer them today. So today I brought Lana and Emily on because they have the educational background that's pertinent to understanding this episode. We've gotten a lot of feedback from this episode. A lot of people are confused and kind of want answers as to what's being talked about. So that's why we're doing this. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about like what Bernie Taylor does and why you guys decided to host him on the podcast. So Bernie Taylor is, he does a lot of public outreach. If you go to his website, you'll see he's done like hundreds of podcasts on YouTube. We know him from David. He reached out to David over dog evolution. Um, Apparently he reaches out to like every podcast he can. Everyone that we've talked to that has a show or podcast, they've all heard of Bernie Taylor because he reaches out to them. And uh, most people on the APN, like we're the only ones on the APN. And when we first told our producer, Chris, that we're going to have him on, he was really concerned. So he reached out to us and we set up an interview and we had some, it was, it was pretty, as you two know, before an interview, we send out an outline of, of the episode and uh, we recorded episode 14 and 13 the same night. So as we were interviewing our producer, Chris, for episode 13, we were emailing with Bernie because he sent us back the outline and it was filled. It was, it was filled out. He's like, Oh, I've answered your questions. This is what I want to talk about tonight. And we said, no, that's not how this works. Like, this is what we're planning to talk about. And he, he almost canceled on us. He said, well, I don't know if I want to do this. Like, I don't want to get stuck in, let me see, where's the actual email he sent to us? Because it was, uh, he basically said, I don't want to be, you know, stuck mired in these conversations of us versus them. And we were like really confused 
and we didn't know what to do. And, and finally, we settled. As long as we settled on if it was a, as long it was as it was a um, professional interview, like we'd go ahead with it. So that's why we ended up having him on. But we didn't. He didn't follow the outline at all. Like we asked him what his background was, and he just ran off. So even though we had this outline settled with him, it's like this is what we want to talk about and keep it formatted, we still didn't stay to it. And basically, the episode was me, David, and Connor trying to like wrangle him in at times and and try to answer our questions because he kept trying to talk over us. Right. So I guess we can generally say that Bernie Taylor at least occupies some pseudoscience space, right? Like what he does is science relevant, and that's why he's on all these podcasts and features. But as we're going to talk about in this episode, he's actually a proponent of pseudoscience and not necessarily supporting his claims with evidence in a at least a way that made sense to me listening to the episode. And so yes. you guys kind of wanted to give him a platform to talk and kind of your original goal was to kind of nail him down on some of these things that he's been putting out and kind of get him to explain them a little bit better, right? Yeah, that was the purpose. And the other media that he's been on, I mean, it's all, they're non-scientific podcasts or YouTube channels. And it's kind of the same thing. He gets on, they ask him a question and he just dominates the conversation. And a lot of the people that I've listened to, I've listened to like six or seven podcasts that he's been on and seen a couple of YouTube videos. One of the alarming things is everyone always calls him an expert. And it's like, he's an expert in domestication or an expert in Native American studies or Native Americans. He was on a podcast trying to talk about why Native people in Hawaii are protesting against the observatory being oh. put in Hawaii. And I was like, where he has no, if you, we tried to look up his credentials in terms of an educational sense, he doesn't have any. Mm. He mentions it that he has a social sciences background or humanities background in his episode. And we're like, we couldn't find a, a college that he went to. And then what's alarming to me is that he's speaking on these public platforms as an expert, but we don't know where this is coming from, how he's an expert in a traditional sense or a non-traditional sense. It really just kind of seems like he's very loud at, at putting out his ideas and therefore he's an expert about them. Yeah. So there's a term for this where people who are not experts in topics have overconfidence in their knowledge of the topic, whereas someone who is actually an expert is usually pretty reserved and they'll say like, oh, that's not what I specialize in, but I will comment on it or things like that. And it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Mm. Bernie Taylor is a perfect example of it, right? Like confident about anything, can talk about any topic from domestication to, as we've in the episode, cave art to, I guess, observatories and science politics with like native communities today. But like, you can't be an expert in all of those things. And if you listen to the original episode and just think about any of the millions of phrases he says out loud for more than the 25 seconds he allows you to think about them before moving on to a new topic, you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't really check out. And it's because he's not an expert in these topics. Right. Like I have not seen somebody who actually studies rock art or cave art be that confident in their interpretation of the images that they're looking at, which was sort of the first sign when I was listening to the original Bernie Taylor episode that I was like, something seems off and that this is somebody who has not actually ever studied rock art or cave art images before. So I'm actually on Bernie Taylor's LinkedIn now and it's public, so I don't feel as creepy about this. <laughs> 
but he is a he's an international recruiter specializing in glass, solar, and photovoltaic and like tromic industries. So I don't know what that means. And he has an academia.edu. Yeah. What? So he has his, he says he's also an author, which he is. He's written books. We talked about him. But uh, I can't pull up his academia account. He also says if you go on the before Orion Amazon.com page, he says that he's a naturalist. Not really sure yeah. exactly what that means. So even on his academia account he just says i'm an independent naturalist thought leader and author doesn't have any education back there yeah and take that as you mean like i mean like we've talked about authority but even when it just even if it's not academic there's no i don't see how he's trained and that that's pretty important i think that will come up several times as as we talk about his episode here Mm -hmm. yeah i was going to say that he um actually reached out to me after i did my episode with a life in ruins podcast Um, Yeah, he emailed me and he sent me a bunch of links to his like personal website and his YouTube page and was like, I hope this helps with your interpretation of your rock art and your dissertation. And I remember watching one video and being like, nope, that's not what I do. So so you're going to cite Bernie Taylor, right? In my diss? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) But I have his background and knowledge for my dissertation. <laughs> yeah, so let's dive into one of the things that we're already talking a little bit about, which is a trick that Bernie Taylor uses throughout the episode that I, I will, just because we've already used the word call, an appeal to authority, right? Like, we're not sure what his educational background is. He's certainly like not an expert in the topics that he's talking about because you can't be an expert in all of those things. But if you're somebody who's practicing pseudoscience and trying to get an audience to believe what you're saying, one of the easiest ways to do that is to name drop other scientists and other figures of authority and be like, well, I'm not the only one saying this content. Somebody else said it as well. And so throughout the episode, you'll hear Bernie Taylor, like, framing his own ideas by saying other scientists started this work and all of that. And like, as as a scientist, you definitely have to cite your sources and acknowledge the work of the people that did, like, did the work before you. But it's very different what Bernie Taylor is doing. He's not citing people because he's not actually referencing their work. He's name dropping them. He's saying their name and then completely pivoting to his own point and then circling back and being like, okay. So one of the good examples is he references this man, George Schaller, who we looked up. He's a biologist. And Bernie Taylor talks about him as this example of like the foremost biologist in he trained Jane Goodall and all of that stuff. And then he goes off on this tirade about how there are African animals depicted in European cave art. And then he wants to also link that to Native American myths, which Emily and Carlton will talk about. But he's not actually engaging with content there. He's just dropping a name of a famous person that you can look up their Wikipedia page so that he can make his point and then moves on to the next point. He does this with psychologists like Nicholas Timbergen and Carl Jung, who are very different in their methodological approaches and probably wouldn't be fine with Bernie Taylor's use of their names. And he also does it with a different author, Joseph Campbell. This is a pseudoscience technique in appeal to authority when you don't have any on your own. And it's really hard to deal with. 
Yeah. So he also mentions like early on in the episode, he talks to like, right when like, what do you, what's your background? He's like, uh, trained in the social sciences. And this is why the social sciences are better than archeology span at interpreting cave art and just runs. He mentions Picasso as a source for looking at this cave art, Joseph Campbell. He talks about George Schaller several times. George Schaller is a mountain gorilla research. He ties Jane Goodall to George Schaller, but everyone knows Jane Goodall's mentor or protege as the Leakies. I had to look up George Schaller and like the fact that we as anthropologists who have a limited background in primatology like had no idea who he was. And George Schaller has become irrelevant since the 1980s. Like he hasn't done much. He studies mountain gorillas in Africa. He also talks about Bigfoot research as being valid. So if you don't look up to look into him and it's, it's difficult, right? And he then later on in the episode, he mentions George Schaller as like the Tiger Woods of biology. Like that's, that's not an equal comparison in the slightest. And honestly, I, I don't know who Schaller is and why he has authority in working with Bernie to interpret rock art in these caves and trying to tell rock art researchers and paleolithic archaeologists and paleoanthropologists that they're wrong in their identifications of animals within cave art. Because Bernie says like, oh, this mammoth, it's not a mammoth, it's an elephant. Well, the UNESCO World Heritage Site description is like, no, these are most definitely mammoths. And that's, that's what the authorities say. And so who is George Schaller? what gives him the credibility in and of himself to say that everyone else is wrong? And why does that having, why does Bernie having a tie to George Schaller and working with George Schaller make Bernie more credible? And it doesn't. I was just going to say on, I know he name drops Picasso as having gone to the caves. Apparently there's not technically a written record of Picasso going to the caves. It's just sort of this like weird myth that has happened that Picasso went to Altamira cave at some point during his like career as an artist. But I think it's interesting because, and we'll get into Bernie's interpretation of rock art at these various caves in France and in Spain, but uh, you know, rock art research is starting to sort of move away from an art historical approach to interpreting rock art and that it needs to be much more archaeological. So I think it's interesting that he's using this like famous painter who's very much in the canon of uh, art history to try to interpret and give authority to, you know, Picasso as, you know, seeing whatever Picasso saw in these in these caves. And I, th- I think it's important that before this segment ends, we should talk. One of the things that Bernie says at the beginning is like the humanities are better for interpreting rock art than archaeology. Archaeology is a social science. And it's I don't think it's something that we've really talked about on this podcast, the background of archaeology, because most of the people that listen are archaeologists. And as archaeologists, we don't just this isn't we're, we're American anthropologists, meaning that we study the holistic nature of human culture through space and time. Archaeology is our specialization in which we study past human culture through their, um, human, for, through their material cultural remains. We don't just date things. We don't just make things up. We look at contemporary people and use contemporary ethnographic evidence to help us understand past behavior. So it's not like we just go to these caves as archaeologists and just come up with what we want to, we have context that we rely on. And context is extremely important in archaeological research. Something that 
I think as we'll see later on, Bernie Taylor doesn't really understand or appreciate because when he talks about his views, the context of the background, like when he talks about Native Americans, historic Native Americans from the Northwest Coast, unnamed tribes, he uses their belief systems as a mean for interpreting Paleolithic rock art in France. And the space and time between those things, you could, that doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold water. Yeah. So, well, you kind of pivoted away from what I wanted to talk about, but like, hopefully we get, I know you guys want to talk about context in this episode, so we'll talk about that. But I did want to mention Bernie's trick of like mentioning um, social science versus humanities versus hard sciences or bench sciences and like kind of artificially pitting them against each other and saying that some are better at tackling topics than others. Like, you know, as an archaeologist, I'm not going to like engage in quantum physics or something like that. But the point of a social science is that it can cross those boundaries between what one would consider a bench science and what one would consider the humanities. That's why anthropology is such a unique field. But this tactic of putting people into pigeonholes and then kind of saying, well, they're all debating, it undermines science as a whole, right? And that's a perfect tactic for a pseudoscience person to be like, well, if scientists don't even agree on this topic, then my ridiculous unfounded claims are just as valid as theirs, right? And it's very insidious, this type of deflection that he's doing. And it's worth mentioning that that is a tactic that is well known for what pseudoscientists are doing to try and undermine confidence. And it's pitting scientists into these little categories and saying they're all debating things. So I have a say just as much as they do. Is that making sense? No, that's, that's perfect sense. So yeah, well, there's one more thing and it's just that these tricks that Bernie Taylor is using appeals to authority, like inciting skepticism in the process of science as a whole and general deflection of topics, right? If you go back and listen to the episode, you can tell that Connor's like getting heated and trying to ask Bernie very specific pointed questions. Like here's a very simple question that I want you to answer. And the first thing Bernie does is pivot to another topic and deflect to a different point. And usually that point is entirely unrelated or it's a name drop, right? It's like three simple tools on repeat. I'm going to deflect from the topic you asked about. I'm going to appeal to authority and I'm going to say that scientists don't know what they're doing. And then it's that tactic on repeat for over an hour. And it's that tactic on repeat in all of the pseudoscience that is gaining a lot of traction today. So I just wanted to mention that. And I think as you as you talked about early on in the episode, Bernie says, archaeology isn't equipped to answer these questions. I have a background in humanities. Humanities is for this. Boom, he goes. And one of the questions Connor asks about dating, Bernie says, now that's an archaeology question. And he doesn't explain what that means at all. And then, he's, and then like he said, he pivots and then name drops and then goes on to something else. He doesn't answer Connor's question in the slightest. Well, here's, here's the thing, too. If you actually listen to Connor's question, it's not about dating at all. It's about how do you reconcile thousands of years and tens of thousands of geographical miles between the Pacific Northwest. You know, that conversation started literally talking about seasonality and salmon movements and ended up at Lascaux Cave in France and universal myth. Like, and oh, oh, and yeah, and the science of dating. Like, to get from that train of thought to the other is not logical. And that is a tool 
Because where do you even start to try and pick that apart from a thorough scientific standpoint? You don't. You ask about how do you deal with cultural continuity? And he gives you science about uranium dating. It's a deflection. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, with that, I think it's time to wrap up this segment. It looks like the salmon runs occurring. So we need to get our baskets out and head out to the rivers. Uh, we'll be back after a little salmon adventure with segment two. Enjoy the ads. And we're back to the special episode of Life and Ruins podcast, APN members only. I'm here with my co-host for today, Lana Ruck and Emily Van Alst. So um, we ended the last segment talking about the tactics Bernie uses to deflect or not answer questions that are pointed at, you know, just simple volleyballs in the air that he won't hit. So I think a big topic and, and central piece to a lot of his claims is the color red. Yeah. So... Bernie's whole idea here is that there's something special about the color red. And this is where he drops the names of some famous psychologists, Nicholas Tinbergen being the first one that he mentions. And I mean, there are a lot of problems with Bernie Taylor's theory on the importance of the color red. But since I'm in cognitive science and psychology, like I'll just talk about this idea that the color red being universal is not meaningful in the sense that Bernie Taylor is using it. And that's because like red is a salient color for evolutionary reasons, not for the cultural reasons he's uh, like kind of using it for, if that makes sense. And one of the things that we talked about when we're trying to figure out how to lay out this episode is that Bernie Taylor always picks like a sweet spot that he wants to generalize to. Sometimes it's wildly overgeneralizing. Sometimes it's wildly undergeneralizing. And his views on the color red are just like so inconsistent because sometimes it's absolutely universal. And other times it's very specific in his own little context that he wants to use it in. From a psychological standpoint, the sources he's dropping and the research he's talking about doesn't support his claim at all. So that needs to be said. You know, one of the things we talked about before this episode and when we were listening to Bernie talk about the color red was, so the red he's talking about is red ochre. It's a naturally occurring pigment. At El Castillo Cave, there is also yellow and black, which are also two of the most, like, naturally occurring pigments in the form of charcoal and ochre. And they're also some of the most well-known, most used sort of pigments in rock art, generally. The images, the red dots he talks about, we don't really know exactly what the context for the the use of the color red is. I mean, it's a 35,000 to 40,000 year old cave. We're not going to be able to understand the you know, thought process behind why a artist or human generally would have picked that color to use. We just don't have the cultural context. And so, you know, Bernie's use of, you know, psychologists to understand this color just doesn't make any sense because you're using a contemporary understanding of the color red <laughs> to understand the color red being used 35 to 40,000 years ago. Yeah. And so... Like, I'm trying to pick the right words here. I feel like it needed to be dealt with that the pigments used in, like, these caves are the ones that are most widely available, right? If you don't find naturally occurring purple pigments, 
then when you find a purple pigment in a cave, maybe it's important, right? But if these are naturally occurring and they're most readily available, ascribing their the choice of their use to something beyond that is a just so story, right? Like, sure, there's like some merit to thinking about it like that, but it's not falsifiable in the way that other scientific arguments are falsifiable. It is a just so story. You can never prove one way or the other that this was an intentional use of red. Second, to say that it's an intentional use of red for a universal psychic like purpose that's an even greater level of a just so story. And what he's citing here is that red is a very salient color. It is used, he's like in stoplights and in stop signs and fire trucks and all that stuff. Like, sure, fine. But to connect that back to the use of the pigment in cave art, again, is a just so story. Like you can't ever independently verify whether it was used for some psychologically, some like psychologically primitive, like, universal thing about human perception, which is the other end of generalization in his argument, like, you can never prove it one way or the other. And that's why interpretive work is so difficult, because you like, scientists who do this work, put in so much effort to avoid just so stories, and to make sure that everything they do is very carefully considering falsifiable versus unfalsifiable claims. And then Bernie just comes in here, and he just like, it's like he's putting in everything in the fridge sandwich together and it tastes like shit, you know? And I think something that's extremely important because like Bernie talks about red on stoplights, like red wasn't always the color on stop signs. It used to be yellow and the kind of the history of why we use red to mean stop. It, it comes from trains in the in the 20th century or 19th century. So it, it didn't and like green, it used to be white for go. And each, if you actually look into it, which countries use what colors to signify what, they're different, which kind of, which completely negates the whole universality to what red means. Cause he talks about like, oh, these three red dots mean stop, get your attention, what's around me. And it's like, that's in a very American modern context, that's what red means. And you guys, he name drops Joseph Campbell. I really don't know who this guy is, but we kind of talked about before this, the problems with Joseph Campbell. And Emily, you had some specific some uh, specific uh, things to say about Joe Campbell. Yeah, so Joseph Campbell was an American professor. He basically looked at uh, comparative mythology and comparative religion, and he gained a lot of sort of recognition because George Lucas credits uh, Joseph Campbell for influencing the Star Wars saga. And so Campbell mostly looked at myths and folklore, kind of had this idea that the myths that we see in all these different cultures and different cultural contexts are sort of universal. And so I think what happened was is that Bernie took this idea of a universal myth and universal myth figures, um, and he's applying that to try to interpret the rock art at El Castillo Cave, which I don't really agree with that sort of overgeneralization of myths. It's happened in anthropology. A lot of anthropological theorists have tried to do this sort of generalizing of different sort of cultural characteristics of different societies, but we know that that's not the best way to interpret culture. Yeah. Yeah. I want to circle back to this, like the topic of at what level 
Bernie wants to generalize things. And like, it's kind of like every scientist has to choose what level of specificity they're going to do their work with, right? Are you going to work with an individual group? Are you going to try and summarize across groups? Are you going to try and make these broad scale evolutionary, like widely sweeping universal theories of whatever, like Bernie is trying to do, like you have to pick some level of specificity and like he's so poorly specifying his that that it's infuriating right on the side that emily is coming from like generalizing the structure of myth across a bunch of different groups is really really problematic and then from my side like generalizing it the way that bernie taylor is doing it it's not even meaningful like because saying like the color red and this universal structure of myth is like sweeping across of all of humanity like so what like we we know that there's lots of things that humans have in common and those two are incredibly poor examples because they're not right like the color of red in psychology or like color studies in psychology are super duper common because they are fascinating and for every study you find about the color red you can find a separate study that finds the opposite finding right like different cultural uses of that color negate Bernie's sweeping evolutionary theory that it's salient. And that means that all of these caves tie together. So then it's like, he's generalizing and kind of alienating the individuality of groups in the end to make an argument that has no evolutionary value and doesn't even make sense. Am I making sense right now? Like, it's just like, you're picking a level of generalization that is so useless that it's just filling up time and space. That's it. Right. And even then, there's millions of examples that show his example of universality isn't even valid. Oh, absolutely. But again, he makes that the, the listener's problem to go figure it out for yourself, right? Like, I know who Nicholas Timbergen is because I had come like do some research in animal cognition. But you guys don't know who that is. And you have no idea how to evaluate his use of that or whatever. And like, I have no idea who Joseph Campbell is, but Emily knows, but that's specific knowledge to her. And if you didn't spend the time to like take apart his argument, which it takes a lot of time, like then you could just take it at face value. And that's how the Bernie Taylors of the world like succeed is because it, it is incredibly effortful to try and debunk this level of, I don't know, like, I don't know, spaghetti bowl, you know, noodle arguments going everywhere. Right. And I think we did. I mean, y'all were y'all were so nice. You were way too nice. You were way too nice to that man. We got burned by him pretty hard because like I said at the at segment one was we had a script and he agreed on it beforehand. And like, that's what we researched and we were ready to go with that. And then he argued about it. He said he was going to go with it and then didn't nothing on that script he talked about. So we had no idea who Joseph Campbell is. We tried to talk to him about Picasso and he just ran over us. Tim Bergen, we had no idea who he was. So we were, we do these scripts so that way we know what to talk with our guests about. And the fact that he circumvented that and we try to ask questions and he's like, that's an archeology span question. It was fucking infuriating. And like the point of us interviewing him, we had goals. Like David was gonna be fact checking about dogs. I was gonna be the angry guy like, no, this isn't right. 
and because that's kind of my role in our podcast is on the obnoxious one. But like Connor <laughs> was vehemently opposed to having Bernie even on. And then so like right off the bat, Connor was already not having it. So like one of us had to play devil's advocate. So that's why I was kind of like, yeah, this is fascinating. It's all abstract. And I was kind of being sarcastic because if you're an archaeologist, and anthropologist, and if you know me, you know that I hate abstract ideas. Like, you know my stance in archaeology when it comes to thinking about really interpretive things without a basis. And yeah, we, I mean, he was a really nice guy. I mean, we talked to him beforehand, like he's really nice. And I, and that's why I wanted to kind of have him on and we were hoping to do a better job of interviewing him, but he circumvented our, our way of doing it. And that's why I thought it was important to have you two on because you guys know who Joseph Campbell is. You guys know the science behind this, that we can talk about it. Yeah. Well, and I will say, I mean, like, I think you were too nice to him, but in the end, it speaks like he speaks for himself in these wild tangents that he goes on and these 17 thoughts in one sentence type thing. Like, I don't know, I went in pretty skeptically, but I'm hoping that pretty much everyone who listened to that episode was like, is it just me or is this guy kind of... <laughs> because you don't really need to say much in order for him to back himself into a corner to any kind of skeptical listener, right? Or at least that's the hope. Yeah, I mean, everyone that I've talked to who's not from an anthropology background, when we're like, what did you think about it? They said it was interesting, but a lot of people were like, he sounds... Like they, there was something innate in that interview, even if you had no background in anthropology, it was questionable. They're like, I, they're like, it sounds interesting, but there was just something that the listeners couldn't articulate, but they're like, it doesn't seem right. So even though he was using these tactics, like our listeners who aren't, you know, anthropologists or archaeologists, it's, it still felt off to them and they were still skepticals, which I was super grateful for. Bless. Yeah, that's good news. That's real good news. <laughs> Oh, and Lana, can you tell us why red is important for primates? Oh, yeah. So one thing, you know, if you're going to go with the argument that red is a salient color and it's for some unifying purpose, the best argument for that is that primates, the whole order of primates, you know, whether it's me or an ape or a tiny little monkey in Africa or South America, all of us have trichromatic color. We can see in an extra spectrum of color compared to other mammals. And it's because we have an evolutionary history on relying upon fruit in our diet. And when fruit transitions from green to red, that's me that means it's ready to eat. So there's an evolutionary precedent for perceiving color in a way specifically that red would be important for a primate. And like, if you want to argue that red is important, that's just as good an argument as whatever Bernie was trying to articulate about cave art. Only mine's not a just so story. It has tons of evidence behind it. And his is just red is psychically universal. Here are these dots in these caves. There are also giraffes and African elephants, which are decidedly not mammoths. Like, one of these stories is evolutionarily compatible. One of them is just throwing in this idea to prove a point that really does not relate. Right. And I'd like to mention, because he keeps talking about red, is like, not all animals see red. We have a special cone, and I don't know the background of this, but like hu humans and primates can see red. He talks about sticklebacks from that Tinbergen research and like, well, they react to red. And it's like, well, they react to red because one of their predators is jellyfish, which are, have a red hue to them. So, yeah, I mean, like, and 
this is my problem. I, I, I have a problem with like evolutionary psychology as a discipline. Don't say that to half the people on my committee who are evolutionary psychologists. But when you look at these examples and these arguments that people are making, usually you can find a specific reason why that species or that taxa or that entire clade, like for us, the order primates, like you can find an evolutionary story for why that happens. And it's usually embedded in the environment. With the exception of primates, it's not in some weird psychic space. It's like animals are very well adapted to their surroundings and so are their behaviors and so is their cognition. So explaining these things at this lower level, like it is much more justified than invoking some animist, spiritual, whatever Bernie Taylor wants to like. That segment is so confusing and befuddled that I don't even know what his take home is true fact. But like, there's no reason to invoke that when you can explain the salience of the color red using environmental factors. And evolutionary psychologists never do that. They go straight from zero to 60. And it's a problem. Emily, would you have like uh, anything to add to the end of the segment? I do think that we should talk about his overgeneralization of Native American calendars. Yes. Can we talk about that? Yes. So Bernie does a lot of his interpretation of, and I want to make this clear to our listeners, European cave art. So caves that are found in Spain and France, which is some of the oldest rock art in the world. But he's using historical accounts of Native American stories, I guess, to interpret the animals that you are seeing in the in the European cave art, which is a dangerous tactic. Um, I see this happen in stuff like ancient aliens, where we're basically just using Native American myths, quote unquote, to interpret whatever we need to interpret, um, which is really, really does a disservice to Native people. And I don't know if Carlton, you want to add anything to that. Well, unfortunately, my red drapes are blowing in the breeze, so it's drawing my attention and telling me to stop. (laughs) So we're going to go ahead and end this second segment, and uh, we'll be back to talk about American Indians uh, in the third segment. But wow, these red drapes. I hate you. All right, we're back with segment three, the wind stopped blowing, so my uh, (laughs) red drapes stopped distracting me. So one thing that Bernie continues to talk about through this entire fucking episode is Native American mythology. He says, you know, he talks about Native Americans a lot. I ask him about it, what tribes, and he just says Northwest Coast is what I'm most familiar with. There are like over 30 indigenous nations in the Northwest Coast, which spans from Oregon up to Alaska. So I don't know who he's referring to. And he also talks about how he gave a talk and made Native Americans cry over salmon. (laughs) What? (laughs) Like, there's no context for, like, who is he talking to? Why does he have the authority to talk about salmon? Like, it's just like, like, I'm just doing mental gymnastics. And so, like, just so people, you know, you know, newsflash, Carlton's Pawnee and Emily is Lakota. And so we we have things to say. <laughs> we, so why don't you go first, Emily? Because you're much better at this than I am. So 
I, yeah, my entire life I've dealt with people with wild ideas about Native people. And so throughout the podcast, I think this is one of the major things that really ticked me off when listening to it of using, well, first of all, calling Native American like oral tradition, just myths and stories, um, which is a disservice to, you know, the hundreds of years that we've had these these oral traditions passed down from generation to generation um, and that that is our knowledge. So that's that's number one. Number two is using these generalizations of just Native American. Well, there's over 560 tribes um, within the United States and there's tons of indigenous groups in Canada. So just saying Native American just doesn't really give you a clear picture of the context. And using that to interpret rock art that's thousands and thousands of miles away and that you don't really see any overlap in the images. So I'm not really sure why he's comparing native myths, historical myths, myths, quote unquote, with this rock art. And then saying Native American calendars as a native person, I don't know what calendars he's referring to. I don't know if the Pawnee have calendars, Native American calendars. I mean, Lakota people have a way of telling time, but we don't refer to them as Native American calendars. So, yeah, I know he keeps talking about the moon, which has some validity because, like, our our new year is like the first new moon of spring, and I think it's based off of thirteen moons or some shit like that that might be what he's referring to, but like, we're also like extremely agricultural based. So we need to know when it's time to put corn in the ground. (laughs) And so, you know, so it doesn't die. And then one thing he talks about, he's like, you know, people used to talk to animals and was like, what? And then I asked him about it. I was like, I don't think they talk to animals so much as like new animal behavior enough to coincide hey you know you know i use the reference of bears Mm -hmm. it's like yeah when bears start getting fat and they change their behavior because they're getting ready for hibernation and it's like it's going to start getting colder so that is such a myth like uh what is it like romanticizing native americans like we spoke to animals like no no this isn't pocahontas we don't have i don't have miko like a raccoon following me around with my life like no I was just about to ask if you had a raccoon sidekick. I don't have a raccoon sidekick. And even as a Lakota person, I don't have a buffalo sidekick or anything of that sort. Jesus, I wish I could talk to wolves. Like, I (laughs) wish that we could talk to animals. That'd be so cool and the best party trick ever. I mean, the best thing that I got is like pets somehow naturally like me. And and that's about it. Yeah, same. But like Lakota people have, we have 13 moons and we have the four seasons. But like, we don't. And like we used to have um, winter counts to try to like, you know, have our oral traditions written down, quote unquote. But like he is just I don't I don't know what a Native American calendar is. And I wish that y'all had asked him what a Native American calendar is, because I'm seriously curious about this. Dude, I think even if we would have asked, as Lana has pointed out several times, like he would have just deflected. And he doesn't even tell us what his sources are. So, it, I mean, it was just grappling w- with all of this nonsense. And like like you said, he's using historic Native American 
histories, and he's not even talking about which ones. He says Northwest Coast as a means to understand rock art, but then he tries to tie it back into, I mean, it's like this, it's this web of bullshit, right? Because he talks about, he talks about Gilgamesh and that shows the universal myth, which is 6,000 years old. And then he's like, oh, but I see this hero story in the Castillo caves. Therefore there's this universal universality to everything. So therefore, because it's universal, the using Northwest coast historic Indians is a good way to understand paleolithic rock art. Like none of that holds water without the other thing. And all of it is nonsensical yeah everything you guys have been talking about is actually wrong because you're missing the part where bernie mentions that his psychic unity like animism stuff is it specifically spread from north and west africa through europe and then went back to africa and it's just like wait what so it's like a third it's like yeah it's like a third layer of crazy on the other two layers of crazy that you guys already talked about. So it's like what you should really have is not a raccoon sidekick, but a giraffe sidekick, obviously. And that's the universal myth, Bernie Taylor 2020. Like what? <laughs> There's a part that a lot of people myth miss is like when uh, Bernie's a lot of people a, miss. When, Miss is David was like, so you see a giraffe, and then Bernie was like, no, there's two giraffes. David, you could barely hear me. Goes, oh, there's two giraffes, <laughs> but like he's kind of like over, shadowed by Bernie, just speedballing over him, and like all of us were muted, just giggling because like a large part of we actually Skype called each other for most of it, I think. So we had that muted, but we could look at each other and just be like, what the fuck. <laughs> Um, cause we, and we were, you know, we text during episodes, like who's next, someone talk about this. So that way it's not in the group chat, which you guys can see on Zencaster at the bottom. So we're uh. we, contrary to popular belief. I know the three of us are kind of doofuses. <laughs> there is a method to like how we do this, that, that makes this thing coherent, but yeah, I can't, what makes me is so much like really upset is one, he, you can't. He doesn't tell you who he studied. He doesn't show what education, but then like he's on podcasts and YouTube videos as the Native American expert. And a lot of the things that he's even talking about, like he's on a on a pot on a YouTube video talking about uh, did I mention this in the first segment about the Hawaiians? Yes, you did. Uh yeah, you did. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like what? I sent that to a couple of my Hawaiian friends and like who the f- is this guy and they were also pissed at the content creator they're like why didn't he reach out to actual hawaiians so i mean it's it's just so so deep it's just like it's so problematic on so many layers that you don't even know where to start right it's amazing there's that one is like yeah you know everyone thinks that owls are wise i was like no they don't in native american myth like they're literally animals of the devil yeah, I mean, like they're them a and death symbol in Lakota culture. Like, we are like, yes. no, 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 we don't care about I'm... that. We care about red ambulances and firelights <laughs> and nice, happy little owls. Like, we don't give a shit about your actual opinions. I'm sorry. I literally have cedar and sage and a small metal pan in my desk or my, my uh, side table drawer next to my bed. Because if I hear a food outside, the first thing I do is yep. get out of bed and burn some yep. sage. Yep. <laughs> Lana, you you were like, why do you have this? And I was just like, uh, it's Indian stuff. But it's because there was a owl that was coming out my bed. And like owls, if, yeah, like like 
Emily said, it's like they are literally a death symbol. It's like if an owl hoots at you or comes at you, that means there's bad shit coming and you need to make it right. So like when he talks about the universality of like owls being wise, and I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not true. And then he's like, so anyways, Native Americans in El Castillo Cave. And, you know, it's like, what? <laughs> I'm just going to say I'm pretty sure there's an entire like owl themed kitchen section in a Target. So don't do that. People love owl-themed shit in America. They're everywhere. Oh, so I know. Yeah, I had a I had a friend growing up. His name is Jason, and his mom had like a whole display cabinet of owls, like little ceramic owls. Oh hell she's no! Like, Aren't these cute? And I was literally like, "Don't let that thing fall over me." <laughs> yeah, like I have an owl mug. I remember like offering you coffee in an owl mug one time, and you were like, "What is this?" And I was like, "It's an adorable owl," and that didn't go across so well. So yeah, avoid Target. Avoid my kitchen pantry and like basically my sister's entire kitchen, I'm sure is owl themed. So yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, going back to Joseph Campbell, I mean, Emily, you said earlier, like his overgeneralizations are not only like wrong, but also racist and, and kind of their foundation. It's, you know, what, what's, what's, what I struggle with here is that, what Bernie talks about in this entire episode, if you don't have a background, you have to literally have a background in all these things to really understand the you know BS of his argument. I mean, even just having a background in two of those things, being American Indian and then being an archaeologist, I can already assume that some of the things he talks about is just already wrong. And he, he misrepresents American Indians in the entire episode. And he overgeneralizes the over 460 federally recognized nations, not even counting the state only recognized nations in this country and like condenses that rich and beautiful and variable amount of cultures into like one belief system. And that infuriates me. Yeah, I mean, and that happens a lot. Like, you know, people use, you know, indigenous knowledge especially anthropologists observe one sort of cultural trait in a society and in in an indigenous society and then they use that to interpret all sorts of other you know societies around the world and that's really dangerous and it's something that happened in rock art so you had somebody david lewis williams who went to south africa and he saw this like very specific sort of spiritual practice that the san this group did um, in terms of rock art. And that got picked up and was used to interpret Paleolithic rock art in Europe in the 80s and 90s. And so, and then that got transferred over to interpreting rock art in Siberia. And then it trickled down over to North America. So you have something that is very specific to a nation in South Africa that has now become the interpretive model all over the world. And it's like, that doesn't make any sense to do that. And Bernie is doing that by saying there's this one Native American myth and that's how we're going to interpret this. And it just does a disservice to indigenous people on a worldwide scale, really. I mean, it's even like bigger than that because he's saying like everybody's culture isn't unique. We all have these universal themes and it's shown in this cave and I'm the only one that can see it. And I'm proving how there's this one dominant myth based on the research by a guy that is like no longer holding weight and I'm using Native Americans and homogenizing their beliefs because I don't understand them to interpret this rock art. It's like this weird 
crazy thin string uh, that's just like tied over itself. It's it's just like nuts because not only is he saying that like Native American culture is homogeneous, like ultimately he's saying all culture is the same and I'm the one that has found that. Right, 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 right. And that's what I was saying earlier, like that's not even a meaningful generalization, right? Like especially for the cost of what it takes to disregard like society like individuality and that these people like like everybody has their own agency and their own cultural practices and whatever to like gloss over all of that to come up with a universal theory of like human whatever that you don't even get to a meaningful end point like don't do that work then you know even if you did come to some like amazing unifying whatever, it would probably be an evolutionary story about something far different than what he's talk- talking about, right? And that's not where he goes with it. And even then, I don't, but it's like, don't do that work to end up at a meaningless place, which is where he ultimately ends up. Yeah. I, I think like, you know, I don't know. What, Bernie's writing books on this stuff, so there's possibly a monetary reason for this. Yeah, I really, really, really want to know how many books he sells. Because most of what I've seen, like if you do a quick Google, it's like, this was rated five stars. And then I'm like, what? And it's like, based on one review. (laughs) Yeah, and it's like, he, he really is such a nice human being. And like at the end of that, he's like, hey, I have, you know, things with podcasts and like I can get you on their podcasts. And like he was really... It's like trying to help us in some ways. And it's also like infuriating that his podcast episodes get like over 10,000 views. And we were just like, wow. We were like, no, no. Are you talking about like, we were just kind of like, holy shit. Like he's, he, I mean, cause I mean, like I said, everyone that we've talked to on an archeology span based podcast, they have all had requests. So after his day job, you know, looking for people to do solar panels or whatever the hell it is, he basically goes online and finds archaeology and science media or whoever and tells them he's interested. And a lot of the people that he's on, like he's talking about dog domestication on some like animal lover podcast. And they have no background in anthropology. They just talk about like breeds. And he's like, well, let me tell you that I could see Alaskan Malamutes in this cave in, in Switzerland. And they don't have the background to be like, what? And they're just like, oh, wow, that's interesting. So like he's hitting markets that, don't have a background in any of this and they just find it fascinating. And yeah. like, that's a huge problem. Yeah. Like Dude, I don't know. Picking an audience that would otherwise not be able to really critique him. And so actually let's connect this to, um, so you had Bernie on the, on the podcast and you wanted to give yep. him some platform and it like, even though, you know, Connor was pretty direct with him, you were, very kind with him and said things like that's fascinating but after the episode was released how'd it go are you and bernie still friends so we found out i don't think it was like a couple weeks ago and we're recording this podcast april 23rd 2020 in the height of quarantine for some reason david on his ethnosynology account was like dude, Bernie Taylor unfollowed me. And then we checked Life in Ruins, like he unfollowed us. He didn't block us, but he doesn't follow us anymore. So we don't know when that occurred. After the episode, before it was released, he emailed us with people to, to hit up to be on podcasts. 
but like that was the last we've heard of him and he's like never really commented on anything um you know there's a big part of that podcast that that's second segment that we need to talk about which was like dog domestication and honestly if you want to know things about dog domestication go to ethnosynology go to the Instagram account, Ethnosynology, David runs, or just ask David. I mean, he's the most qualified to talk about those things. I think David, like in that last part of that second segment, was like really good at kind of going back and forth with Bernie on sources. Yeah, because he's an expert and he can do that right off the bat, right? But like, right. otherwise it wouldn't happen. Yeah. I mean, like, I hope this doesn't come across as, as bashing Bernie. I mean, I think, I think we probably will, but yeah. the reason why I wanted to have Lana and Emily on is because they're, they're experts in this field and like they could supply the information to really, we dissected this. And so hopefully for our listeners, like you listen to Bernie's now you can listen to these two extremely brilliant ladies talk about the issues with Bernie's argument. So. Well, and I'm like, you know, how many of the podcasts that Bernie was on, like even had the resources or thought to do a follow-up episode where you take a couple things that he says and really get into what the content is to be like, actually, this is not even close to the best argument that should be made using this data. Probably almost none of them, maybe literally none of them. And that's why pseudoscience is so effective. It's like you listen to it once, you don't have any impetus to put in any mental effort to try and debunk these things yourself, especially if you're a naive listener. And then that's it. The story, you know, the book is closed and that's incredibly unfortunate. And I think that's what happens with rock art is rock art is so up. It's seen in archeology, span even as like this subjective thing where you're just interpreting from your own perspective, you know, what, what the images mean. And like, you know, it is very possible that when Bernie Taylor looks at those, you know, those images, he sees drabs and elephants and all this stuff. That's fine. I'm not going to argue him on what he's looking at because you can stare and stare and stare at art, whether it's rock art or a painting or drawing or photograph. And it's going to mean something to different to every single person. That's fine. I'm fine with that. But when you are completely decontextualizing rock art, that's when I have a problem because decontextualizing those images and using them for your own argument is dangerous and it does a disservice to the art and it does a disservice to the people who created it in the first place. And so that happens a lot with Native American rock art, especially in North America, especially with ancient aliens. They decontextualize our images, which are normally knowledge for indigenous communities that's being passed down through the generations. And so the decontextualization of rock art and pseudoscience actually intersect a lot. And I think Bernie is unfortunately an example of that. I'd also like to mention, he keeps talking about this elephant. A, it's not even rock art. The elephant that he's talking about is like the formation of the cave wall panel, which looks naturally occurring. And so it's like even beyond the the cave images, he's like looking at things and trying to tell us, he's trying to sell us that there's an elephant in the room when no one, I mean, people study this cave and like no one even sees that as valid. So dudes, I don't know, but thank you so much. I hope, uh, Zern, do we have any last bits that we want to mention? Um, no, <laughs> no we, don't we, have a, we covered everything. We don't have a, we could. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, uh, thank you everyone for uh, listening to this bonus episode of Life and Ruins podcast. Thank you guys so much for being APN supporters. Um, we here at Life and Ruins, we don't see any of that money. It is specifically to support our wonderful producers to make the Archaeology Podcast Network feasible. So really, your money that you're spending to listen to this episode is going to make sure that the content on the APN stays free. So thank you so much for your contribution. I hope you guys like this episode. Let us know how you feel about it. And uh, we got more bonus episodes coming up. Please listen to the show. Um, and that's me, uh, Carlton Gover. We're here with my awesome co-hosts, Lana Ruck and Emily Van Alston. We will see you guys later. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Hey, guys, what's gray but turns red? Mm-hmm. What? An embarrassed elephant in El Castillo Caves. <laughs> oh, my God. Perfect. And uh, that hurt me. I don't understand how Connor's alive right now. He's done like 23 of these jokes. Oh, boy. God, I feel for him now. I've I've been in his shoes. All right, everyone. That's us. And we're out. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.